Welcome to the future. You're listening to the Consensus Network. Consensus Network. Consensus Network. With Buck Joffrey. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with Consensus Network. Uh, it's been a while since we've done a pure Consensus Network show. We did Tone Bay's a couple weeks ago, but that was on both Wealth Formula Podcast and Consensus Network. And uh, during that, uh, at that time, what we saw over the last couple of weeks, and who knows what it's going to be like by the time this airs, because this is being recorded uh, the week before it airs, but we've had a, I guess, a fairly significant uh, spike in Bitcoin prices. Uh, if you look in the last, you know, in the last, uh, oh gosh, less than a month, we're up like you know, 25, 30%. And um, to the question, I think a lot of people are thinking about at this point is, well, is this a new Bitcoin bull run? Um, are we there? You know, is this, and there's a lot of, I think, fear of uh, missing out, AKA FOMO. Uh, but the reality is, I don't know that I, I mean, listen, it, it could, hopefully it does end up being a bull run. Um, the techno, technical guys, the technical analysis guys, um, are kind of split on this. Tech, uh, Tyler Jenks and Tone Bays, who was on about, are still uh, fairly confident in their predictions of having a, uh, you know, a floor that's below uh, three thousand. Um, on the other hand, there's uh, plenty of respected folks on the other side who uh, don't that already think the floor is in. So, I mean, what caused this recent? Uh, drive up into the mid uh, 5,000s? Uh, the answer is really nothing. Nothing's fundamentally changed. Uh, we're just seeing a lot of price action here. So who knows? Um, you know, I, I kind of uh, am, am secretly hoping there's a, another um, another dip down, you know, under four grand so I can pick up some more Bitcoin. But, um, you know, I've been holding off because uh, I, I dumped some uh, some just Bitcoin, not my alts, but a uh, Bitcoin that I bought a fair amount of toward the end of last year. And I, I got out at around 5,200. And so I was kind of hoping to pick it back up a little bit, uh, a little bit less than that. Anyway. Um, so anyway, the bottom line is that uh, not a whole lot is happening with the market right now, but uh, we're going to keep sort of, you know, uh, building a foundation at least every other week of continued uh, education in the space. I think that's what you're seeing going on in, in uh, blockchain and Bitcoin uh, is re regardless of what the price is showing you, we are having a uh, significant advances in technology. Um, you know, the guys at Blockstream are doing amazing things with Lightning Network, et cetera. And even though over the past 14, 15 months of the bear market, the price has been awful. It's a much better technology than it was 15 months ago. So sometimes uh, price doesn't follow um, right away. So anyway, uh, this week we're going to have a, I'm going to uh, play a interview that I did with a guy by the name of Mark Roderick. He's a leading crowdfunding and fintech lawyer uh, in the U.S. Uh, who has uh, found himself in this space of uh, cryptocurrencies, distributed ledger technologies. And um, I think he's got some really interesting uh, insights. And when we come back, we're going to talk to him. Now, there isn't much more exciting than cryptocurrency, but there are old-fashioned ways of creating wealth outside of Wall Street that have been used by the wealthiest families in the world for generations. 
And that's what my other podcast is all about. It's called Wealth Formula Podcast. Now, if you've made a lot of money in crypto and don't know what to do next, this show might actually answer a lot of those questions too. Again, it's Wealth Formula Podcast with me, Buck Joffrey. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest is Mark Roderick. He is one of the leading crowdfunding and fintech lawyers in the United States, uh, expanding on his in-depth knowledge of capital raising and securities law. Mark represents many portals and other players in the crowdfunding field. He writes widely. Um, he writes a widely read blog, which is called crownedfundattorney.com, but it's with an A-T-T-N-Y.com which we'll have later in the show notes anyway. Uh, and that blog provides readers with a wealth of legal and practical information for portals, issuers, and investors. He also speaks at crowdfunding events across the country and represents industry participants across the country and around the world. Mark, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. You bet. Now, tell us a little bit about your background beyond what I just told you. Of course, you're an attorney. You got, you're got you uh, presumably a, a securities attorney. How did you get involved in the cryptocurrency space? What got you sort of you know in that direction? Well, I was walking down the street one day. No. Um, so my background, I've been practicing law a long time, and, and I, during my a long and storied career, I've always represented entrepreneurs um, in all the stuff that entrepreneurs do, um, you know, all kinds of contracts and buying and selling companies and starting new businesses and all that stuff. But one of the things that entrepreneurs are always doing is raising money because capital, of course, is the lifeblood of all businesses, especially new businesses. Yeah. So always been heavily involved in helping people raise money. And so when, uh, that's how I got into crowdfunding. When the Jobs Act was on the horizon, I said to myself, this is totally cool and transformative and disruptive, and it's gonna be really good for the economy. And, and exciting, so this is where I wanna be. So ever since then, for the last uh, five years or so, that was sort of a natural outgrowth of representing entrepreneurs raising capital, because here was a brand new and much improved way, both for invest or, uh, entrepreneurs to raise capital and for investors to invest in lots of good deals. And then the cryptocurrency space and the blockchain space sort of opened up and merged to some degree with the crowdfunding space a couple of years ago. In fact, I, <laughs> I was signed up, um, you know, this was typical. We signed up to speak at a big crowdfunding event in Los Angeles. And by the time we all got there, it was kind of half crowdfunding and half crypto and blockchain. So those two spaces have a lot of overlap. So of course, now in crowdfunding, I've represented a bunch of people doing, you know, ICOs and, and tokens and, and that whole gig. So that's, that's how yeah. it's all developed. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about that. Because, um, you know, you mentioned that a couple of years ago, you got involved in this because there was people who were interested, uh, presumably in the blockchain space, of doing this through the Jobs Act, doing this through 
legal means, uh, at least in the eyes of, of the uh, SEC. But uh, in reality, we had a lot of, uh, you know, Wild West stuff going on, right? And we had the whole ICO craze uh, coming out. And there really, there really wasn't any regulation around that. Um, is that are those days over? Do you uh, ICOs as we previously know them, knew them, are they now dead? Well, I'm not sure that they're dead. I, I don't pretend to be smart enough to to know whether ICOs are are dead. And I mean, what we went through wasn't a period where there wasn't regulation. We really went through a period where too many lawyers who should have known otherwise had drank too much Kool-Aid or something and and got themselves convinced that these new this new technology you know was so new that it couldn't possibly be subject to existing regulation and to many of us at the time that that was obviously not true but if you were in Los Angeles <laughs> If you were in that area, well, you're in Southern California. So if you were in Southern California in 2017, in the summer of 2017, you were probably drinking the Kool-Aid too. And I don't mean you personally, but I mean anybody. So there were just too many people hypnotically um, wanting to convince themselves that, um, you know, this was such a brand new thing that it wasn't subject to any of these rules. And it just, it wasn't right then. It was obviously not right. And unfortunately, a lot of people got hurt because of that very poor advice. Now, ICOs. So um, let's distinguish an ICO from what today everyone is calling an STO which is a security token, which really just means an offering of securities. Let's talk about ICOs um, in the way they were originally formulated, which is I'm selling a token and, and I'm selling something that has utility, but that I don't believe is a security. And the example I always use, you're trying to raise money for a movie theater chain, a new movie theater chain, and you have two possibilities. The old fashioned way would be to sell stock in your company. And um, a different way would be to sell little blue movie tickets, right? Little blue admission tickets. Those are tokens. And you can sell tokens to um, finance, provide the capital for your movie chain. Um, the, the question has always been from an investor's point of view. And again, and here I'm assuming these are real tokens. They're just little blue movie tickets. These are not securities. So forget all that legal stuff. Economically, the question has always been, are investors better off buying little blue movie tickets, buying tokens in somebody's network than they are owning stock in the company? Now, I've always thought that for the most part, investors are better off owning stock for all the reasons that they've always owned stock, which is, you know, your your interests as an investor are more aligned with management's interests and all that kind of stuff. But there's also, and, and that kind of seems to be where we're heading. We're, we're just heading back to the norm. But I don't, pretend to be smart enough to know there may be some circumstances 
where you'd rather own the blue movie ticket. You know, you'd rather own the token than stock. So I don't want to say ICOs of that kind are dead, but, you know, the bubble has certainly burst. The air has come out of the balloon, as, as we all know. What I mean by that ICOs are dead is the way they were done, right? I mean, obviously, presumably right now, you can look at a lot of things um, that in the, in the last year in particular, you know, we had a bunch of pre-sales that were limited to accredited investors, um, you know, Regulation D, 506C type stuff. Um, but for the most part, I mean, the major, uh, you know, the, the new stuff coming out there, you know, the, the Hedera Hashgraph or, you know, Definity or whatever, they're not really interested in taking the same kind of approaches, say, Ethereum did, uh, which was, you know, very much a Wild West approach. So it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that way of approaching it, saying that this is no longer, uh, this is not something we need to really worry about, the law is much about, is probably not the case for any legitimate project going forward. A hundred percent agreed. Right. A hundred percent agreed. Yep. That, that way of doing it had a short uh, shelf life. It burned brightly like a Roman candle, but poof. Yeah. Now, now but as a corollary to that, and, and this is what I'm really curious about. Now, what happens to a lot of these tokens that violated the SEC rules before? Now, so for example, you have Ethereum, which was actually deemed by the SEC to be sufficiently distributed, not to be a security, but that's not the case for a lot of tokens. And for example, you know, there's a significant concentration even in EOS which raised $4 billion. So what happens to, um, does the SEC have to go back one by one and uh, particularly uh, focus on these big projects and, and go back and penalize them? And if they raised enough money, they survive? Is that kind of how it works? How does it work now? No, I mean, the SEC really couldn't care less um, about these old projects. So, so many deals were done in the, improper way. And the consequence is not that they're going to get in trouble with the SEC. The The consequence, and you've seen this in a bunch of situations, is that the people who bought them, you know, let's say they bought it for $10 per token, and now it's worth 50 cents per token, or whatever it's worth per token, those investors now have a right to sue. That's That's the main consequence. And in many cases, they have sued. And as you know, there are lawyers around who specialize in those class action lawsuits, and they have made <laughs> more money than anyone else just about in the crypto space. So yeah, it's not the SEC coming in. It's just that these people have an illegal right. offering. Right. And, and all those token holders have the right to sue, although the value is often not there to, to sue, but everyone knows going forward, those things are securities and everyone has to act accordingly. There was a, there was a few projects um, that under, sort of, um, you know, try to avoid um, American uh, securities law from the beginning, probably anticipating that this could be an issue down the line and their operating company may have operated you know, uh, really been based out of, say, the Cayman Islands or something like that. Do you, are they immune from some of these lawsuits? It makes it a lot more difficult, at least, right? 
Great, great question. Um, they are, if they, for example, I represent a company, just began to represent them. I didn't represent them at the time. They had a Cayman Islands company, did an ICO, um, you know, using Regulation S, no non-U.S. investors. So, yeah, those folks have no U.S. consequences. However, the way those deals were done, they were, <laughs> let's put it this way. I think they have real legal issues in all the other jurisdictions where they sold where they sold tokens. These things were being done, as you know, <laughs> like a mill that, you know, there were these legal mills in the Cayman Islands doing these things. And um, yeah, it's wonderful. Okay, you, you didn't have any US investors, so you're not gonna be sued in the, in the US. That, that does not mean that you are immune from lawsuits somewhere else. Um, if that, if that answers you your question. based in the Cayman Islands, but you did sell to U.S. investors, can U.S. investors sue you then? Can they, Oh, sure. They can, but they'd have to sue you in the Cayman Islands, right? And then Yeah, they, maybe not. I mean, uh, maybe not. Now, in fact, I would say probably not. If, if you were selling into the U.S., I bet U.S. courts would exert jurisdiction over you. Got it. So, um, but isn't it, it's just interesting if we had had this conversation even 12 months ago, this is not the conversation we probably would have had. We wouldn't have been talking about lawsuits and so forth. We would have been talking about all the world changing stuff that these ICOs were going to accomplish. It just shows how quickly this market has changed. Yeah. And I think in that regard, it has a lot of parallels probably to the dot-com era. I mean, there was the dot-com you know, 1.0, a lot of the crazy stuff. Yep. And when everything imploded out of the ashes came the Amazons and. Yeah, um, absolutely know, right. Well, so, so I, I think that's probably in my view where we're, we're looking at. So um, as I, as I mentioned earlier, there's been a lot of, um, you know, there've been a number of uh, specifically pre-sales uh, in the last year. I mentioned Hedera, I mentioned, you know, a, a few others out there. And they are, are they really focusing uh, for the most part on what looks like the Reg D, Regulation D506C, which is limited to accredited investors. And as a reminder to people out there, it's basically people who make a little bit more money, two or $300,000 per year, a million dollars in net worth uh, outside of your personal residence, yada, yada. The bottom line is most of these companies are, are doing that. Meanwhile, as you mentioned, the Jobs Act, uh, there is, there are these other means by which if people wish to raise money, they could. Uh, regulation crowdfunding, AAA. I've got a friend who has a, you know, who's, who's got a fund that's open to anybody. Um, I think it's a AAA, I think you call it, or, but he- Reggae, has, regulation A. Yeah, yeah. And it, he's basically, you know, he's got a $50 million fund in non-performing yeah. notes. Right. Um, yeah, why not? Sure. I, I might represent him. <laughs> it's very my, possible. Friend, my friend, George Newberry. Yeah. He's a good buddy and client of mine. <laughs> yeah. He's, uh, he's actually a very good friend of mine too. So fantastic uh, guy. Yeah. Yeah. George is an exceptional human being. Yeah. It's, it's okay, funny. Great. Small, I, small world, isn't it? 
It's, it is a small world. In fact, I was, call, I was calling him just before I was uh, talking to you. But anyway, so, so George has got this fun. He's, he's made it, you know, he, he went really uh, all in on this to, um, you know, do all the right things. Why, if you're, a, uh, if you're trying to raise a lot of capital, um, is it just the expense part of it? Is it just more cumbersome? Why aren't more of these companies doing this? And just to fill in your question, by doing this, you mean using Regulation A rather right. than using right. Rule 506C. Right. And the answer is yes, it is just the time and cost. So a Rule 506C offering very fast, meaning a matter of a couple of weeks or a week. I do Rule 506 offerings in a week. And a Regulation A call. Uh, offering costs or uh, takes, let's say, five months. That no exaggeration. So a week versus five months, and the cost is about five times as much cost um, to do a Regulation A offering. And the reason is you didn't ask, but I'll tell you. The reason is that since our securities laws were written in the 1930s, one of several fundamental concepts has been rich people can take care of themselves because they can hire expensive lawyers and accountants and stuff. And non-rich people cannot. So when you use the term accredited investor, in our securities laws, that is a stand-in term for the concept of wealthy person. So in 506C, you're only selling to wealthy persons. So the government doesn't care what you do, Wild West. Regulation A, you're selling to non-accredited people, non-wealthy people. So the government, in the form of the SEC, has to put its arm around people's shoulders to make sure you're not cheating them. So um, that is why Regulation A takes a lot more time and costs a lot more money. And that's why people, if you don't have to, people don't do it. Now, George, okay, so there are two reasons to do it. One is non-accredited investors do have money, um, contrary to what people in Los well, Angeles. There's a lot more of them. <laughs> there's a lot more of them. Right. Yeah, only a couple percent of the population is accredited. So, when you're in Los Angeles or New York, you know, all your friends are accredited investors, or it can seem that way. But all across the great swath of the United States, most people are not accredited investors, and they still have plenty of money to invest. So one, they have money, but two, and this is one of the, probably the main reason George did it. If you believe as George does, and I do, (laughs) that ordinary Americans should have the opportunity to participate in good deals and that they should not be reserved to the hedge fund managers and the hedge fund manager clients, then you may, and George has, put his money where his mouth was and taken the time and spent the extra dollars to make his deals, which are terrific deals, available to ordinary Americans. So that's there are great reasons to do it, but you can understand why many people do not. Yeah, cost compliance probably is probably more rigid as well. I'm guessing it is for sure. And and those and all those things and um, you know it makes you know it makes a um, you make a good point and and it's interesting 
too, when I listen to some of the other cryptocurrency um, podcasts, you know, um, some of the, uh, even uh, Anthony Pompliano has a, a, a very good podcast. He's very prolific in this um, space. And he's always talking about how these laws are unfair to people who are not accredited. But the reality is that there are laws that make it very fair. We're just not using them. <laughs> that is that is absolutely true. Now, right. now, what he means by that and what, you know, I, I hear this a lot and, you know, well, a non-accredited investor can get on a plane and fly to Las Vegas and spend all of his money and the government lets him do it. So why shouldn't they let him buy cryptocurrencies and right. other securities? Um, the answer to that, I mean, that's a great libertarian viewpoint, but the answer is that the government doesn't care whether casinos in Las Vegas survive, but the government cares very, very much that the American capital markets remain transparent and trustworthy because after all, what led to the Great Depression was in part the collapse of the American capital markets. So the government is has these laws it's not the ultimate purpose is not to protect the investor it's to protect the capital markets themselves and the american public's faith in the capital markets so that american companies can raise money that's so there there's a big governmental interest in protecting our our capital markets. It's not just coincidence that no. the government does care about that and doesn't care about the casinos. Right. Uh, let's talk a little bit about exchanges. Um, okay. Platforms. What needs to happen for exchanges to become more compliant in the eyes of, say, American securities law? It's not hard. That's the thing. And I mean, that's kind of the irony that has been true from the beginning of the crypto. Um, all these people who did non-compliant ICOs, you know, if they had spent fifteen or twenty thousand dollars, you know, they're raising two hundred million dollars. <laughs> if they just spent a little money, they could have been fully compliant. The same is true of exchanges. It doesn't take very much in the scheme of things to create a totally compliant secondary exchange. So, just to pick a number, write a check for fifty thousand dollars, and you will soon have a fully compliant exchange. Um, you create, you buy or create a, a broker dealer and uh, you, you file something with the SEC to register as a so-called alternative trading system, ATS. And there you go. And then you can have a secondary market for cryptocurrencies and, and any other kind of security that you want to. The interesting thing to me about this whole issue and enforcement is that by the very nature of what we're talking about, some of these things don't have a centralized authority, right? I mean, if you talk about exchanges, for example, you have um, you know, a number of decentralized exchanges. Um, what do you do with decentralized exchanges if they are not in compliance? I mean, how do you, how do you, how do you enforce anything? if no one's really the owner? Well, someone's the owner. Someone's always the owner, but- um, Or at least created. Again, I just, the, the big picture is all these issues are ultimately not SEC issues. I mean, that's what people think about. And when you read 
blog posts and stuff, people always say, well, the SEC is going to come in and lead you out in handcuffs. The issue with all these things is always private lawsuits. Right, right. And if you are running a non-compliant secondary market exchange, something that should be regulated and is not regulated, you are in effect going to get shut down as a result of private lawsuits, whether the SEC ever knows about you or not. Well, let's focus on something that the SEC does have control of. Um, You know, a lot of people in the space, um, you know, we're in crypto winter right now. Everybody's kind of uh, trying to figure out if and when the next bull run comes and what's going to trigger it. One of the things that, um, that a lot of people have been looking forward to uh, is the, the possibility of an ETF specifically there's one with the Chicago Board of Options Exchange, Vanek Solid. So some very big names in the space. The decision um, has been delayed several times, uh, put off, et cetera. Do you think that this type of thing is going to happen anytime soon? Or do you think the, the, um, you know, the, the entire crypto space is just not ready for it? And ultimately, the SEC will find a reason not to... Um, to not to allow it. Yeah, I'm it's I don't know, I'm not a super expert on the ETF question. Um my perception is that there are some technical issues around that, that the SEC uh that the SEC cares about around decentralization and custody of securities and and things like that. How does it how does how does anyone ever know who actually owns it at any given time? So there are technical issues around it. I think conceptually there are no problems with it, it that it, if it weren't for these technical, uh, even technology issues, the, the SEC would be fine with it. You know, the concept of having an ETF, which is just a basket of securities, or in this case, a basket of cryptocurrencies that allows people to trade them. I don't think the SEC has any fundamental problem with that at all. I mean, you can have baskets of all of commodities, wheats and pigs and all kinds of things. So fundamentally it's an acceptable concept but the sec is having a hard time getting its hands around some of the just very prosaic issues which is what the same reason it's having trouble in the regulation a space um uh uh approving an offering of security tokens Mm -hmm. um nothing to do with whether they make good investments for anybody it just can't figure out some like these these custody issues are just driving everyone crazy but conceptually it's fine and if the technical issues could get resolved i wouldn't be surprised if the etf were approved tomorrow got it you make uh you you've been talking about uh utility tokens versus security tokens why don't you talk a little bit about how you know so with utility tokens uh, the idea there is so with security tokens, it's basically like owning stock. But when specifically when you talk about utility tokens, it's like, for example, um, say you have a. Um, why don't you describe a utility token? Because there's lots of this, specifically like in the gaming space, et cetera. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. 
Well, the, the best example that I could, that uh, I come up with is the little blue movie tickets. Right. They're, it's a, a token. Ability token is just something that gets you admission to something. Right. And yes, in the gaming, it can get you three characters, you know, or it can get you a sword, a, a sword and a, and a flashlight to, you know, uh, penetrate the, the dungeon. It's, it's anything that just gives you admission um, as opposed to being something that gives you rights of ownership. Right. And of course the problem initially was people were selling things that they called tokens, but the tokens had all sorts of benefits that looked like ownership rights and they were selling them with the hopes that they would appreciate, which looks like an investment. But think of the blue movie ticket, gets you into the theater, that's all it does. That is a utility token. So tell us more about your, uh, you know, what you're doing, uh, your, you know, give, basically give us a little plug in, in terms of <laughs> who you can help and how we can contact you and all that. Okay. Well, as I say, um, I spend 127% of my time in the crowdfunding world and the fintech world generically. It means doing, you know, offerings of all kinds, including, of course, a lot of real estate, uh, but also tokens and crypto kind of assets and helping people these days, as, as your, my conversation here would suggest where we are in the market, yeah. helping people who might have been involved in some not quite uh, perfectly executed high COs kind of turn that right. I'm involved in a number of those. You know, the investment side too, like suing, uh, suing, you know, sort of ICO. Yeah, I haven't, got, <laughs> I haven't done that yet. I get asked, um, but I generally help people fix things that may not have been done properly before. Um, and just in every conceivable niche of this of this market, um, it, in terms of how people can get a hold of me, the blog, which is where most people find me, is crowdfund, which is spelled the way it sounds, and then attny.com. Or if you didn't happen to have a pen and paper today, if you just type in Mark Roderick crowdfunding attorney, you will you will find me everywhere. And of course, all my contact information is, is on my blog. And if, if you do want to talk, I'm always willing to talk. I spend all day talking about crowdfunding and related topics. Um, uh, shoot me an email and, and we can set up a time to talk. What's your email? Well, you'll see it. It's, <laughs> it'll take from now until October for me to spell it right for everyone. So go. find it at the blog. Sounds All right. Yeah. Sounds good. Well, listen, it was good talking to you, Mark. Uh, and uh, again, small world. Interesting. Uh, we both know some of the same people. Uh, but thanks for your time today. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Be right back. Want to buy Bitcoin with your IRA? Don't waste your time on expensive IRA custodians. A strategy called a QRP is as easy as writing a check. Find out how. Text 44222 and type QRP book. That's one word. 
and get a free book that explains everything. Again, that's 44222-QRP-BOOK, one word. It's the easiest way to make Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies part of your retirement. Uh, welcome back to the show, everyone. I uh, hope you enjoyed that again. It's just, you know, at this point, just trying to uh, continue to learn a little bit about this space and getting all of uh, as much information as we can. Um, you know, I think, uh, Mark, uh, for those of you who are looking at this from a, uh, you know, larger, larger perspective in terms of, you know, whether you want to take this asset class seriously or not, he's a good guy to obviously kind of follow because he's been in the mainstream and this is also a space that he is now closely involved with. Um, so uh, not a lot going on here. As I said before, the, uh, the, the news is there's not a whole lot of news to report other than prices going up for not a clear uh, cut reason. Um, I do have one question that I'm going to answer. Again, if you feel like uh, sending in questions, if you're listening, uh, go ahead, go to consensusnetwork.io uh, and, um, and uh, fill out uh, the forms there to ask, ask some questions and be happy to answer. Um, there's also a way to record a voicemail there if you decide to do it that way. Uh, here, so here is the question. It's from Nick. Um, he says, I uh, am looking for a definitive answer on these questions. If tokens uh, slash coins aren't ownership in a company, what is the security in owning them? How are coins valued? Does it make sense uh, to believe that, say, XRP, for example, will acquire will be acquired by a large multi and be uh, converted to shares? Is that even possible? Um, so, Nick, I think there's a lot of questions there. Fundamentally, uh, I think the question I think that's most most important is understanding. Well, first of all. Uh, the goal is not to uh, get acquired by companies uh, in cryptocurrency as a general rule. For distributed ledger technology, the idea for the most part is to eliminate the company uh, and have people who own um, various cryptocurrencies uh, ultimately be, you know, uh, had not have a middleman, being able to exchange uh, currencies or whatever it is, contracts, et cetera, without having, you know, a company in the middle. So fundamentally, that's uh, that kind of uh, thinking is probably not likely. Uh, specifically, when you talk about XRP, that's a complicated situation because, um, frankly, XRP, uh, which is a cryptocurrency issued by the company Ripple, uh, this is a controversial uh, cryptocurrency. I mean, a lot of the purists, et cetera, and uh, frankly, me, don't really even understand exactly what the point of XRP is. We know Ripple is a company that has a significant amount of uh, you know, investors from, from Silicon Valley and that own this company. They issued this ledger, distributed ledger called um, XRapid or XRP. And... So it's not the best example in the world uh, for trying to explain sort of the valuation of um, cryptocurrencies. But let me let me step back a little bit and take the most obvious uh, cryptocurrency and talk about why, you know, what is its value and maybe just give you my perspective on that. So let's talk about Bitcoin. What is Bitcoin? Bitcoin is also ultimately a blockchain. And so it's software. 
right? And um, it is, again, there's no company in between uh, Bitcoin and the, the people who use or store Bitcoin. Bitcoin has ended up becoming valuable um, because of uh, some things it, uh, about it, it's some characteristics. And those characteristics are that there will never be more than uh, 21 million Bitcoin. Um, it's never been hacked. It really can't be hacked. It is not, it's something that you can custodian yourself and carry large amounts of across borders uh, without necessarily needing suitcases or banks. Um, it is uh, immutable, meaning that it can't be changed. The blockchain, once things are, are, um, are in the blockchain, you cannot, you're not, you can't go back and change that. It is the safest, probably, um, uh, certainly the uh, most secure cryptocurrency uh, and obviously the first one out there. So these are what people um, look at as, as the things that create value in this particular cryptocurrency that we call Bitcoin. So you may look at that and say, well, gosh, I'm, I mean, I don't get it, right? I mean, why, why does that, um, you know, why does that, what you just talked about there, Buck, doesn't tell me what the underlying, um, you know, uh, value of it is. I mean, what, what is it secured by, as you said? Well, let me, let me ask this question of you. Um, why is gold valuable? I mean, so... The question of that ends up being that it's been believed to have value for thousands of years. And um, I, don't, I don't argue that. I think that's, there's truth to that. But what is it about gold in particular that gives it its value? Um, there's something about gold that, you know, it has to be mined just like Bitcoin. It, there's a finite amount of it. It's difficult. It costs a lot. It's difficult to mine, um, and so with that, in that regard, it's similar to uh, what we talk about with Bitcoin. Um, gold is, uh, you know, it's got some properties to it, like corrosion resistance, and um, uh, you know, it doesn't oxidize. Um, it's pretty, you know. So that's what, so the, I guess you could, what my point is here is that when you ask about Bitcoin and what is it securitized by, I think that specifically in the case of Bitcoin, it's, um, it is the value of the software itself, right? And, and the fact that there is only so much of it available. So the purists in gold, I mean, and there actually are a number of people who, um, you know, who are gold bugs who have become Bitcoin uh, people. But, you know, my point is here that uh, those who have not, I don't think have really understood that the parallels here are pretty significant. The big difference, uh, you know, to me is that gold has been around for thousands of years. Okay, so what? I mean, that certainly gives it stability and, and all that. But um, anyway, the bottom line is, that I think the way uh, you have to look at this is that it is a, um, a, you know, it is a different kind of storage of value with intrinsic value, much the way gold has. As for other cryptocurrencies, I think it becomes more challenging. Um, and 
what the value is uh, really comes down to, for the most part, I think, supply and demand. Um, there are a number of there are a number of projects out there that, frankly, should have no value, but they do. Um, and you know, those types of things are going to eventually go to zero. Probably most things are going to go to zero. You know, but if you look at some of the um, projects that we've had on the show, for example, we've you know, the one I, I think, um, well, let's talk about, for example, Ethereum. Ethereum has got value because it was the first smart contract. And that kind of software uh, has significant value to people using it, building on it, et cetera. It ended up getting uh, additional value simply because of the fact um, that people were using it uh, in uh, initial coin offerings. And then that part is sort of not as big a deal anymore. So it may not, you know, get the same value uh, proposition as before. But there's also a number of other projects out there um, that are sort of second generation smart contract uh, type vehicles. Um, you know, certainly uh, EOS, although EOS is a, a tricky thing because it's hard to tell where the governance issues are with that. But then a couple of projects that will be, uh, you know, that, that, that you're going to start to see like Definity and Hedera Hashgraph. Um, you know, these are the next generation smart contract things. So it, the power and value is in what they can do, right? Now, if you look at, um, uh, because there's no ownership, central ownership, no business uh, that owns all of this stuff, um, you can kind of look at it as a, a, you know, owning part of a business, um, you know, owning part of uh, the, uh, the, the software itself by, you know, having cryptocurrency. Um, so anyway, supply and demand in that situation is what is bringing up prices. Um, we need to distinguish that from other tokens types. For example, there's utility tokens. Um, there are tokens that, that have a significant purpose, you know, like wax token, for example, using for gamers. Um, you know, so in the situation like that, uh, again, it's a supply and demand issue, but that that has a, a different kind of it's a different kind of currency in the gaming world. So, again, supply and demand. And then there are actually tokens, um, the the stable coins that you know you're going to see. You already see a bunch of them around. And then there's the Gemini US dollar coin, and I think Coinbase has got one, or they're going to have one. Um, there's a bunch of these decentralized ones, which really aren't cryptocurrencies. They're just sort of digital money. Um, U.S. dollars, and the purpose of those is to be pegged to the U.S. dollar, but to serve the purpose of eventually probably uh, uh, replacing the whole wiring and SWIFT code and all that stuff that's so expensive to do. So, um, in a nutshell, hopefully that uh, that kind of summarizes the different kinds of value propositions for coins and tokens, but it's a very difficult question in part because I think every project and every blockchain has a very specific niche. Um, and so is it a, you know, is it a, a value of, uh, is it a storage of value or like Bitcoin? Is it a smart contract platform like, like Ethereum or EOS? Um, you know, is it for micropayments like uh, Adira Hashgraph maybe? It's hard to say, but they all, it's, so you can't really lump them in. Uh, as much uh, as as it would be nice to be able to think of all cryptocurrencies, they're all pretty different. 
Um, anyway, that is it for me this week on Consensus Network. Um, thanks for the question. Uh, make sure you uh, leave your questions at consensusnetwork.io. Check out the website. Uh, there's some educational stuff there as well. If you feel like starting to buy some uh, Bitcoin, um, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. I, I don't know. It's, it's a tricky thing. I was hoping to, I was thinking that I would probably continue to drop and I'd, I'd buy, you know, under 3000 But I also believe that Bitcoin is going to be something that's going to be worth a lot of money in five years. So, I don't know, maybe it doesn't make a difference if you're buying a little at 3000 versus 5000 if it goes to 50000 So, um, again, that's it for me this week on Consensus Network. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. <laughs>